Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is up, everyone? This is chilling in the state house, but we are chilling in the state house. Well, first off, we're chilling in the state house with me, Andrew Ball, one half of your lovely state house bureau. But Titus, my normal friend, he is on vacation, so we have a guest host, and he is very—I could see him grinning. He is very excited for this moment. Uh, our our guest host today is none other than John Hanna. Associated Press. What is what's your exact title, John? Correspondent. Correspondent. AP has all these fancy terms, and I don't yes. know which is which. John Hanna, the AP correspondent here in the State House, and our our good friend and colleague, John. Are you excited to be here? I am, Andrew. I am. It, this uh, this seems like a lot of fun to to sit and just chat about State House stuff. Well, every week, every week, whenever we do the podcast, you, you all ask to be on it. So we figured it was only fitting that as we start to work some guests in that we would start with our uh, guest from down here. Well, and, and it did. It just seemed like everybody was having a lot of uh, fun talking about uh, state political and government issues. So And we wouldn't want to leave you out of that. And well, and, and uh, I, can, I can talk, so... <laughs> I can talk too, although how how well that's up in the air. But there's no shortage of things to talk about. Exactly. As we look forward to May and the the grand shebang, uh, the the legislature definitely does not go out with a whisper. It goes out with a bang. And uh, probably, well, there are a lot of unknowns right now, but probably the biggest unknown is the state budget and more specifically the big gaping hole that currently exists in the state budget that is about the size of the money that usually goes to the Kansas Department of Education and to fund schools. That's right. It's 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 a total of about five point eight billion dollars. That includes somewhere around five point two, five point three billion dollars in state aid to school districts plus the Department of Education's uh, budget. And so um, that has just been removed for the moment. Um, and for the moment is key. For the moment is very key. Uh, of course, they will pass funding for public schools at, at some level because they, they have to. But um, the question is exactly how much. And then the other piece that's kind of tied to that is whether uh, conservative Republicans continue pursuing some school choice initiatives that were in a bill that had the education funding, um, but it also had these initiatives and it failed uh, 2020 in the Senate on the last day before they started their spring break. So much drama. 
See, all the yes. people out there who think that, that state politics is boring. It's never boring. Well, and, and, and these, are, these are interesting proposals. One, um, the, one expands a tax credit program uh, that was started in 2015 or 2016 uh, when, uh, a bit of background, the legislator, legislature was pushed to increase school funding by Kansas Supreme Court decisions in a lawsuit that was filed in 2010. And people need to understand that the state has been in and out of court over school funding for several decades now. And and this was when that lawsuit was active. It was active through, through from 2010 through 2019. And uh, conservative Republicans who controlled the legislature at the time under Governor Sam Brownback, also a conservative Republican, wanted some policy things. Um, one of them was that they removed guaranteed teacher tenure. Another was that they started this tax credit program, and you get the tax credit as a taxpayer if you donate to a fund that gives out essentially scholarships, private school scholarships, to at-risk kids to move them from, right now it's the 100 lowest performing schools, move them from those schools to private schools, where they, in theory, is that they'd get a better education. Part of the proposal here is to expand it to at-risk kids in all schools, um, but the tax credits would still be capped at $10 million. What they found is only about $3 million of those tax credits have been used regularly on an annual basis. So the, the, the supporters of this idea see an opportunity to expand that. But the other proposal, the one that's really interesting, if you oppose it interesting in a bad way, but if you support it interesting in a great way, is this proposal to set up education savings account under the, accounts under the state treasurer for at-risk kids. And the idea is, is that the state dollars go into that account and you as the parent can use those dollars for a wide range of things designed to help your kid if they're struggling in school up to and including private school tuition. Um, There's some debate over how much different this is from a traditional voucher program. Uh, Voucher being a word that public education advocates have used in in the negative sense, um, where you just give the parents the tax dollars and directly and they decide how to use it that's been a big goal of the of some conservative republicans who'd like to do more with school choice in kansas their argument being that more choice competition will not only help students but it will make the public schools better by forcing them to compete of course education groups, the, the school boards, the KNEA, the, the teachers union and Democrats argue that all you're really doing is taking money from public schools and thereby hurting them. And there's also an argument that we heard during the Senate debate that part of the problem is, is that a majority of Kansas counties 
don't right. have private schools the rural rural counties and so the argument is what will happen is this will work great in urban areas kansas city johnson county perhaps topeka which has a number of uh, private schools or the wichita area but if you're out in northwest kansas or or a sparsely populated area it's not going to help you that much the argument goes right and i think that's when you break down where the opposition comes to this even from within the republican caucus it's a lot of folks i mean it's more moderate folks in general but they are from areas that do just do not have private schools and that's why you get people who are maybe even less moderate voting against it because it's just not in their interests um, whereas the backers of this in terms of the Republicans are mainly from the Kansas City and, and Wichita areas. The interesting thing about the politics of school funding is there is always an element of rural-urban uh, that gets in the mix along with the general partisan split in, in philosoph- philosophies on education spending. For example, for decades you've had Uh, Republicans in Johnson County who talk about favoring more funding for schools, but they've also wanted more authority for their local school districts to impose their own property taxes to add to what the state is providing. And 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 to go way, way in the wayback machine here. Which is why we have you on. this system that the state is dealing with now is a product of an earlier lawsuit uh, that was finally settled and dealt with in 1992, where the state set in and set a base amount of spending per pupil as a way of, and then imposed a statewide property tax levy to help fund it and then was supposed to fill in much of the difference. This system was designed to uh, lessen the gap, the disparities in property tax levies between poor and rich school districts, rich in terms of property wealth. And it was designed, it was, it was designed to, to show that the state was responsible for funding schools, which was one of the early rulings in that previous lawsuit was that the responsibility for funding schools, it lies with the legislature and not with local school districts. And so we've always, since then, we've always had this tension between wanting folks who want more local authority, because for example, in Johnson County, you know, you could raise a lot of money and put a lot of money into schools with arguably not a huge property tax levy. And there there might be the political will, whereas in a rural area with, with not a lot of uh, property tax wealth, Galena was always, the, in southeast Kansas, was always the example because uh, a, a, a mill of property taxes, $1 per $1,000 of assessed value, didn't raise very much. So in terms of being able to raise money, it was difficult. And politically, it was harder to sell because you had fewer, you had people with lower incomes, and you would have to raise the levy much higher to get the money you wanted. And 
the idea was to kind of equalize all of this. So that's all in the background, decades of fights over that. And you tend to get these splits between urban and rural. Um, interestingly enough, when the Hugoton gas fields out in southwest Kansas were at their height in terms of production, uh, some of the the some of those school districts were among the wealthiest in the state. And, and of course, uh, the Burlington School District is among the wealthiest in the state because it is the site of the Wolf Creek nuclear power plant. Oh, sure. So all of those issues come into play when you talk about school funding. Where the state is now is in 2019, the legislature approved the last piece of the current funding formula committing to a series of increases in spending under a five-year plan. And the Supreme Court said, okay, that's sufficient. The legislature is doing its job to adequately fund schools. But they didn't, the justices didn't close the lawsuit. They kept it open. And what that means is if the four school districts that sued the state feel aggrieved by what the legislature does, they don't have to go back through the whole process. They don't have to go to district court. They don't, it's not going to be a three or four year process. They just file a, a motion with the Supreme Court to reopen this and, and, and litigate whether what the legislature has done is enough. And, and so that's kind of hanging out there as these deliberations are going. Now, the education bill that went down, it contained the governor's proposal for school funding. Fully funded. Fully funded. Under the definition of that law, fully funded. But there are definitely questions of whether the school choice provisions would be open to a challenge. Yeah. Given how it would impact certainly the four districts who were involved in that lawsuit, they're all areas that would have private schools that would be siphoning off students yeah well and that would be one one issue how how would the attorneys for those school districts look at that law and what what would they do there i mean the the discussion i had with one of the attorneys was well we're at the stage where we're watching but there's also the sense that they may not look favorably on that and that would open up to litigation and and then John and I get to go to court in our finest outfits. Yeah, our our our, uh, our flashy ties. <laughs> so looking forward, um, again, this is something that they are going to have to address. Yeah. It seems like, though, that at least in the Senate, they might be looking to take the school choice element of this up next year and not this year. You know, they're in, in the the Frankenstein bill, so to speak. Uh, that's what the critics call it. That's what the it, critics right? call it, but it's such an evocative name. Yes. Have you, have you ever read Mary Shelley's novel, by the way? You know, I have not. It's, it's actually, the interesting thing is, is that the, the creature, he's not a monster in Mary Shelley's novel. He's the creature much, much more articulate because he's given the brain of a professor, uh, as I recall. And, and um, uh, Victor Frankenstein, his creator, decides after the creature kills everyone he loves, he goes to chase him north to the pole, uh, Mary Shelley not knowing that much about geography at the time, and none of them did. And the ending is is that 
he the the creature ends up on an ice floe and and kind of uh, commits basically commits suicide because he's miserable and um and uh so that's just an aside i don't know where that fits into this uh the critics of the bill called it frank the frankenstein bill but i think i think you're right the senses we got from talking with molly Baumgartner, the the chair of the Senate Education Committee is that um, they might want to vet these proposals more. A lot of which, because they kind of, they passed the House, but they never made it to the Senate until the very end when this right. bill died. And it's obviously apparent there was not as much interest, perhaps, as they initially thought. Well, and, and this is a case of um, where the process gets a little not schoolhouse rock um you know if you remember schoolhouse rock i'm just a bill uh, it doesn't work that way um and some of that is the pressure of deadlines but the way it works is if one house passes a bill on a subject then it's what's it's a bill that's becomes what they call conferenceable, which means a conference committee, three senators, three House members, can discuss it at any point dealing with another bill kind of in roughly the same area, but not directly on topic. So you get things just moved around and... Right. You know, so, we were joking that you need a flowchart almost to track sometimes what's going on. And and that's what happened with this bill. It, it passed the House... The Senate had a school choice, the smaller school choice piece that I talked about, and some other initiatives, but they never dealt with the education savings plan. I think that was called the Proposed Student Empowerment Act. I think that's what they were. Empowerment Program. Which isn't a loaded title at all. No. Well, it's it's in the grand tradition of legislators naming things. But the Senate didn't deal with that bigger piece. The the conference committee gets together the three senators and the three house members two republicans on each side and they decide to try the bigger piece um in with some modifications and and then you just go to the senate and the reaction you have to overcome the fact that senators have not seen this proposal and some of them are not that familiar with it if, if you're pushing the legislation. And, and um, I mean, we saw that with the, the bill on transgender athletes and the, the so-called protection of, I think it was called the Protection of Women's Sports Act, which the House never even had a hearing on that. And it popped up in an education bill and and passed now you could argue that there was so much attention paid to that that you know house members could have caught up to generally what that bill was about by just by just reading the news accounts of it well and also i mean not to say that that isn't a nuanced issue because it is oh yeah but it doesn't have the same prerequisite of understanding school funding which is maybe the most difficult right one of the most school, difficult policy pieces school funding is is very difficult because there's the policy end of it there's the money end of it and then there's a very there can be a very intense focus 
um, on the actual computer runs that tell you exactly how much each district will get. And you can go through and see whether your district will get as much per student as other districts based on a whole number of fac uh, factors. Now, you can tell what's going to happen to your school district. Moreover, the parents, teachers, and superintendents in your district can tell as well. So if you vote for something in one of your districts was to lose aid or not come out as well, they know that you voted yes and they know what the consequences were and you know there's a source of, of and, and they know there. your phone number and they, know and they will track number. you down yes and they they yes they will they will call you and email you circling back a little bit and this is maybe a little more of a global discussion but i think given your experience is an interesting one you know a lot of people listening to this probably have some idea of the process, but maybe not everyone. And when they hear the, the, how the sausage gets made, as it were, where, you know, things were advanced without hearings, things were advanced in conference committees and these very select groups of negotiators, they might start to question all the schoolhouse rock they listened to growing up and, and, and how this process works. I'm just interested in your perspective on, you know, for folks who are, who, who grumble that, that some of how this was done is not democratic and is not, you know, upholding the integrity of the process. I'm curious your perspective on some of the behind the scenes that people maybe don't see. Here's a general observation. Everybody complains about the process when it works against them. Everybody kind of looks the other way if this process is giving them something they support. So it, we have to be careful. But the looseness of this process does make it harder if you're outside the building to follow what's going on. Or even inside the building. Sometimes. Even inside the building. Now, what's interesting is you have that issue, but now, because of the pandemic, you have a lot more meetings. You have meetings, a lot more meetings that are accessible online. That's true. Pretty much all the committee meetings and the House and Senate floor sessions are now accessible online. So that... That tends to go perhaps in the opposite direction, and that's been an interesting development. Um, it, it, it used to be way back in, you know, the Stone Age, I'll call it, when I started my career, um, a bill would get a number and it would stay with, generally it would stay with that number. So you just had to know where that bill was. Okay, you would have situations, for example, I'm told I never saw this. This was an era before me, but I, I was told there were powerful committee chair, chairmen who, if they disagreed with the outcome of the vote, they would just sit on the report to the full House or the Senate, just wouldn't turn it in, you know, um, 
So by those standards, Kansas is now a bastion of transparency. Well, and that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Um, as a matter of fact, the frustration is often on the part of people who are fighting something, trying to prevent something from happen, happening, and then trying to figure out where it will come up. And if it, if it fails over here, is it going to pop up over there? And I think in one of my stories, I described it as kind of being like a carnival game of whack-a-mole. Uh, and it really is. We'll we'll take the the women's sports transgen- transgender athletes bill. I mean, there were in the final days before that passed and went to the governor, there were four or five different routes it could go to get there and to get around the lack of a hearing, lack of committee action in the house the other thing that this process does is it can it can compress the last few developments into a very short period of time right and that's that is kind of a natural function of the way they do business you know they they meet and and time is it's kind of a little bit of slow motion through february and then things start to pick up speed in march and and you know right before the spring break you have this short intense period of legislating and then you get back for they call it the veto session it's really kind of a wrap-up session where they finish their business for the year and that is their most intense period of legislating and you know stuff move can move very very quickly and um, you know, something can fail on the floor. They can pull it back into conference and be back in an hour to try again. That kind of thing can happen. And it's just, it's the nature of having a compressed time frame to finish your work. There is an end date that the legislature schedules to finish right. by it's not a it's not I, I guess missouri has an actual date and time in its constitution when things must end it's not quite that way in kansas all you people out there who who think politics is boring this is yeah it's it's very interesting to watch there have been some sessions when it's been you know the the wrap-up is in its 40th day and um, they're going to try the big budget tax bill for the ninth or tenth time. Um, and everybody's tired and grouchy, um, where I don't think they think it's the world's greatest <laughs> legislative system. But other times, I mean, n- I've never heard any Kansans yet pine for a full-time legislature. And I don't think the members would want a full-time legislature. Very interesting stuff. John, if they want to read your work, where can folks do that? APnews.com. And is that a backslash? Kansas. I uh, think it's that, APnews.com and there's a slash or a back. I think it's a backslash. Use the slash you normally use slash, when, you, when yeah. you type websites. When you type in websites, Kansas. And that's where you can see my stuff. And are you on Twitter? Yes, uh, APJD Hanna. Where you tweet, among other things, prairie chicken? Yes. Images? I love prairie chickens. That is a, that is a 
fascinating debate to me uh, over the, and it's not even the greater prairie chicken, it's the lesser prairie chicken. That is, that is a really interesting debate because there was a discussion here five, six years ago about their habitats and, and their numbers had dropped. And uh, the governor at the time, Sam Brownback, said it was probably mainly due to drought conditions and it would rebound. And others said, no, it's, it's, a, it's a problem and, and we want to preserve the lesser prairie chicken. And, of course, the issue is with any kind of environmental rules meant to preserve habitat, you know, how are you going to, in Kansas, how are you going to affect farming and oil production? And that's, that was the serious end of the debate, um, trying to preserve this species versus, you know, hindering too much of this economic activity. And so it was actually a fairly serious debate, but, you know, there, there was at one point a bill that said the federal government had no right to regulate prairie chickens in Kansas um, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I grew to love the prairie chicken. I think we all should love the prairie chicken. Yes. My, my Twitter has less prairie chicken content, but you can find me at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L, and you can find my work and Titus's work at cjonline.com or you can just listen to this podcast which comes out every monday 10 a.m sharp except for the mondays in which the legislature procrastinates the week before Mm -hmm. but 98 percent of the mondays monday 10 a.m and we are on spotify apple Podcasts, google play wherever you listen to your audio content or you can just go to the capital journal website so you can pull it up on your phone and and listen while you're while you, while you're jogging, right? Yeah, or while you're tending to your prairie chickens. Yes, <laughs> yes. That is all for this week. But we will be back next time, Monday, ten a.m. We will see you all there. Thank you, John. Sure, glad to do it.